The Fallacy of Vaccination by Alexander Wilder, M.D. This is an adult brain audiobook production read by Graham Dunlop. Bad begins and worse remains behind. Hamlet The 14th day of May, 1896, was observed at several places in Europe as the centenary of the introduction of vaccination among the resources of the healing art. The event thus commemorated was the performing of the first operation by Edward Jenner upon a young lad named James Phipps, with the result of successfully producing the characteristic vesicle of the vaccine disease. The celebration, however, attracted but little attention, partly because those who credit the utility of the peculiar operation are indifferent to its early history, and partly because the modern notions respecting it are very widely different from those promulgated by Jenner himself. Besides, there is among profounder thinkers and observers a growing conviction that vaccination, so far from being a benefit to mankind, is itself utterly useless as a preventative, irrational, and unscientific in theory, and actually the means of disseminating disease afresh where it is performed. Hence, while governments are stepping outside of their legitimate province to enforce the operation, the people who act from better information upon the subject are steadily becoming adverse. Several years ago, compulsory vaccination was submitted to the voting population of Switzerland by the referendum, and every canton but one gave a majority against it. In other countries, the governments act arbitrarily and have conferred despotic powers upon privileged professional men and so the practice is enforced without mercy. Its advocates have taken little pains to convince those who distrust its utility, but instead have resorted to the employment of other and often reprehensible means. Children are excluded from the public schools unless they have been vaccinated, and the attempt is made to worry and coerce the parents and guardians into compliance with the arbitrary condition by prosecutions for truancy. In many instances, they have succumbed from a feeling of utter helplessness, precisely as men submit to the bastinado inflicted by Oriental despotism. In other cases, they have followed as in a groove, without considering what was right or wrong, reasonable or fallacious. Advantage has been taken of the prevalent inattention to the matter to foist upon the statutes of various health regulations and other requirements often in flagrant violation of personal rights and with no adequate justification. Passengers upon ocean steamers are forced to submit to the operation. Unvaccinated children are excluded from schools, and persons employed in factories, warehouses, and the civil service are compelled to submit to be vaccinated on penalty of losing their places. Soldiers in the army and seamen in the navy are also obliged to submit as a matter of discipline. As a century ago, they were inoculated, perforce for smallpox. Nevertheless, the claims for vaccination have never been demonstrated to be sanctioned by any ascertained law or principle in the medical art. The chief, indeed, the sole argument has been the citing of statistics, more or less perverted, and the inference that because the matter has been made so to appear it must be presumed to be with good reason. Further argument is met by stolid silence and by an apparent concert of purpose to exclude carefully all discussion of the matter from medical and public journals and to denounce all who object. When an accused person finds it hard to repel a charge, 
he frequently seeks to divert attention by vilifying another. Yet many objections to vaccination have been intelligently made from personal experience and observation, and by persons fully entitled to respectful consideration. They will not always be dismissed by obstinate silence and unworthy innuendos. Those who object are conscious that they are right and therefore entitled to be heard. If the public health and safety constitute the supreme law, then a candid and critical examination of this whole subject is imperatively demanded. The contaminating of the body of a healthy person by the virus of disease, under any pretext whatever, is unphilosophical, unjustifiable, criminal. The possibilities are that he will not contract a contagious disorder so long as the standard of health can be maintained. To infect him with distemper on the plea of protecting him is preposterous. The lymph of a vaccine pustule contains no virtue or quality that will in any way remove the liability to contract smallpox. No one can intelligently deny that it is itself the product of decay of tissue, that it is produced by the decomposition or retrograde metamorphosis of the tissue of the body. It is but a little removed from absolute rottenness. This being the fact that the inserting of such material into the living tissues of another person is a culpable act, and nothing less than the contaminating and infecting of the body of that individual with filthy, loathsome, poisonous material. In fact, it will be found by careful observation that whenever a vaccinator or core of vaccinators set out upon a vaccinating crusade, there follows very generally a number of deaths from erysipelas and other maladies which have been induced by the operation, accompanied by suffering of the most heart-rending character. Dr. Hubert Bowens of Belgium has pushed the matter further and announced even more alarming discoveries. The appearance and character of vaccine pustules have warranted apprehension that their remoter origin was from an infection more venomous than smallpox. The virus used by the earlier vaccinators have been derived from the diseased teats of cows and heels of horses. The disease in these cases was thought to be spontaneous. It appears, however, that every such case could be traced to a groom or a milker who was suffering from the bad disease. No heifer or bullock had cowpox, but only milch cattle, and then only when the hand of the milker disturbed them. Rickard, the famous specialist of Paris, caused several individuals to be inoculated from the bleebs of patients suffering from that complaint. The result was the development of vesicles, scabs, and eskers, easy to be taken for those of vaccine ulceration. The description of the one would answer for a description of the other. If it be insisted that the virus now used is not of such a character, it may be implied that outbreaks of that disease have repeatedly ensued upon vaccination. Besides, the practice exists of inoculating calves from smallpox vesicles and huckstering the material thus obtained as vaccine virus. With these facts in view, it seems almost unnecessary to declare the current notion that vaccination will prevent smallpox or even mitigate the severity of the attack to be entirely destitute of foundation. Indeed, every observing person can enumerate examples of vaccinated persons who were afterward taken with the disease. Even young Phipps, whose case furnished the occasion for the late commemorative celebration, was afterward attacked by smallpox in the confluent form. Several others who had been vaccinated for experiment also had the disease at a later period. 
Barron carefully kept several such experiences out of sight, actually insisting that facts of this character must be held from the newspapers. In a letter of remonstrance, he wrote as follows, I wish my professional brethren to be slow to publish fatal cases of smallpox after vaccination. Among our own people in later years, this injunction appears to be diligently heeded. Occasionally, however, a death by vaccination is published, and immediately the effort is put forth assiduously to make it to be believed that it was from some other cause. The statistics of smallpox purporting to distinguish between vaccinated and unvaccinated persons are too often not quite trustworthy. Many persons who have been vaccinated are falsely reported as unvaccinated. Even when death occurs as the result of vaccination, the truth is concealed and the case represented as scarlet fever, measles, erysipelas, or some masked disease in order to prevent too close questioning. The failure of vaccination to assure exemption from smallpox has been made a reason to pretext for repetitions of the operation. Nevertheless, the history of the last 50 years affords sufficient evidence to show that even repeated vaccination has no merit. A case came to the knowledge of the writer some years ago of a man employed for years in a hospital who was successfully vaccinated some seven or eight times and afterward contracted smallpox. Another had been vaccinated in infancy, then vaccinated a second time when he procured employment as a coachman, and a third time upon entering the army, after which he was taken with the disease. Much of the terrible mortality of the prisoners confined at Andersonville during the Civil War was caused by vaccination. And there were several peculiar epidemics in both the Federal and Confederate armies, attributable to a similar origin. Medical men, scholars, and publicists of the highest reputation concur in their testimony in regard to the subject. Alexander von Humboldt, in a letter to Mr. Gibbs, president of the Anti-Vaccination League of London, declared emphatically, I have clearly perceived the progressive, dangerous influence of vaccination in England, France, and Germany. While utterly powerless for good, says Alfred Russell Wallace, Vaccination is a certain cause of disease and death in many cases, and is the probable cause of about 10,000 deaths annually by inoculable diseases of the most terrible and disgusting character. Francis W. Newman, Herbert Spencer, and others of equal note have borne similar testimony. Besides, these are prominent physicians, some of whom have been in charge of smallpox hospitals, where they have abundant means of observing. Several of them freely gave up thousands of pounds of professional income for the sake of their convictions of duty thus enkindled. Even to have had smallpox itself affords no safeguard against its recurring. Louis XV of France contracted the disease by inoculation at the age of 16 and died of a second attack at 64. Sir Thomas Watson, author of the standard work on medical practice, makes the following statement. During an epidemic of smallpox in Scotland, Dr. John Thompson saw from June 1818 to December 1819 556 cases. Of these, 41 took the smallpox the second time, and Dr. Thompson knew of 30 others, making 71 in all. The London Medical Gazette of November 6, 1830, contained a letter dated at Kanpur in India, 
written by Dr. J.S. Chapman, assistant surgeon to the 11th Light Dragoons, having the following items. Smallpox has been playing the very deuce at this station. There appears to be no positive security against the disease, either by vaccination or smallpox inoculation. And I have seen several cases where the patients have caught the smallpox twice and have each time been severely marked and in two instances have died of the second attack of smallpox. Certainly, by far the greater number of our smallpox cases have occurred in persons vaccinated in India 12 or 15 years ago. Sir James Y. Simpson of Edinburgh mentions the case of a woman who died from her eighth attack. In the smallpox hospital of London, there were three cases which occurred after a previous attack of the disease, two of which were after both vaccination and smallpox, besides four which came after the patients had smallpox from inoculation. Epidemics of smallpox are as numerous and as severe as they were one or two centuries ago. It is probably no more possible to avert them than it is to prevent volcanic eruptions, droughts, or devastating storms. One epidemic, however, is never precisely similar to another in manifestation or severity. The type and character are principally determined by the predominating influence in the earth and atmosphere. Dr. Charles Crichton of London, writing for the Encyclopedia Britannica, declares that the total death rate from smallpox in modern times is almost the same as it was in the 18th century. Large aggregates collected by experienced statisticians in times preceding the introduction of vaccination exhibit a mortality of 18.8%. Those of later periods show a death rate of 18.5%, which is hardly a noticeable decrease. It must be borne in mind, says Dr. Crichton, that the division into discrete, confluent, and malignant smallpox is an old one, that a mild type was quite common in the 17th and 18th centuries and was then characteristic of whole epidemics, just as in the case of Scarlatina, and that the vaccinated are at present liable to be attacked by the confluent and malignant disease, as well as the discreet. Varioloid. Dr. Crichton quotes several tables of statistics, and then remarks, The official figures for Bavaria are more precise. Among the 24,429 cases of smallpox in vaccinated persons, there were 3,994 deaths, while among the 1,313 unvaccinated cases, there were 790 deaths. Of the latter, no fewer than 743 deaths were infants in their first year. The mortality both among the vaccinated and the unvaccinated is always excessive in infancy. Feeble health as well as non-vaccination is a factor in the very excessive mortality at that tender age. The statistics show that from 1847 till 1865, three-fourths of the cases of smallpox in England were those of children under five years of age. The great epidemic of 1871 was characterized by the change of this disparity from children to persons of mature years. The average number of children continued the same as before, but the enumeration of adults had mounted up to an extraordinary figure. The Epidemiological Society of London, making an effort to procure the enforcement of vaccination, cited these tables of statistics. A report of the Society accordingly set forth the comparison that, during the 12 years before the passage of the Compulsory Vaccination Act of 1853, 
there had died of smallpox in England and Wales no less than 82,825 persons, while for the 12 years immediately ensuing to that period, the number of deaths from that malady was but 47,710, a little more than half. It appears from these figures that during the 24 years enumerated, there had died from smallpox in the two countries 130,535 persons. The average fatality from the disease before the enacting of the compulsory law was 7%. It seems, accordingly, that despite the enforcing of vaccination, two millions of the population were attacked. Of this number of smallpox patients, 84% had been vaccinated. The facts hardly verify the assumption that smallpox had been mitigated by the enforcing of the compulsory law. In the census of 1870, there is a table which shows that there was more smallpox in England in 1860 than in 1850, and still more in 1870 than in 1860. Smallpox had become more prevalent since the spread of vaccination. And yet, in each year, this disease was far less fatal than measles, scarlatina, or consumption. An examination of the statistics kept in the different cities of the United States will disclose similar facts. In the seasons when smallpox is epidemic, the deaths from measles invariably exceed those from that disease. While the cases of scarlatina and the deaths from it are far more numerous, sometimes outnumbering 30 to 1. If the facts were impartially presented in their true light and no effort made to create a panic over the few cases of smallpox for the sake of jobs and vaccination, the public attention would be directed to the diseases that were actually sweeping away their victims by the scores and hundreds, rather than to the meager role of smallpox cases. Before the end of the second 12 years indicated in the report of the Epidemiological Society, there broke out an epidemic in England severe enough to dampen whatever confidence the representations of the society might have inspired. During the years 1863, 1864, and 1865, when vaccination had become general and compulsory, smallpox prevailed to an unusual extent in England as well as in Germany, Hungary, France, and Sweden. As an example of its severity, there were 1,346 persons in Upper Bavaria attacked by it in the malignant form, of whom 90% had been vaccinated. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.